I'm so excited to introduce the Bakari Sellers podcast in partnership with The Ringer. We're tackling the issues of the day through interviews with high profile guests and conversations with a rotating panel of the country's best and leading thinkers, influencers and writers. You know, I'm not only an attorney and a former elected official. Sometimes you see me on CNN and I'm a new author of a New York Times bestselling book, My Vanishing Country. But now we're introducing the Bakari Sellers podcast and we're going to cover everything from the 2020 election to sports and culture to the larger movement for racial equality in the United States. We're going to have some of your favorite quarterbacks, some of your favorite politicians, some of your favorite athletes, writers, singers, actors, actresses. The Bakari Sellers podcast will debut on Monday, June 29th. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. When we was kids, tang with breakfast, tang with lunch. TV was saying it's what the astronauts drank on their way to the moon. You drank it, well, then you could be an astronaut too. All summer long, that shit was all the hair kids drank. What do you think they grew up to be? A nigga did that shit to hurt me, man. But, yo, man, D was just fucking weak. Yo, man, it's sad what happened. That shit is sad. It is. I love the job, Lord. I can't help it. Job doesn't love you. You know, when you stand with a nigga, you stand with him to the end. Otherwise, otherwise you ain't nothing yourself. So here we are, season two, episode seven, Backwash. Backwash is such a nasty term. Like immediately when I saw what the title of this episode was, I just kind of turned my nose up like backwash. Are you one of those people, Van, who do you believe in backwash? (laughs) Do you not finish? I'm I'm one of those people. I don't finish water bottles all the way because of backwash. Is that weird? Yes. You don't don't finish your own water bottles? My own water bottle. Which is crazy, right? Because I know I know where I've been. And wait, yet- wait, 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 wait. Hold on. Before we get into the episode, I can understand not wanting to drink because I always had this thing. I would see people drinking after eat, like in football. Like we didn't have right. the little spray things. We still were on cups in the South. I would see people hand right. off water. I'd be like, I would never do that. This is pre-COVID. I would never, ever, ever drink behind you, dog. I don't know where you've been. But you don't finish your own bottle of water because of backwash. I don't. It's, it's such a right. weird thing. Okay. Like, I don't, we're, I don't. We're going to start keeping a running tally of all the peculiar <laughs> shit that goes on in the life and times of Jamel Hill. You, you're afraid of... You, so you're just giving away water. You're giving away Dasani and Aquafina and all of that stuff. You're just letting it go for no reason because of your own backwash. Because of my own backwash. Look, once somebody kind of told me that, or, you know, you just kind of learn what backwash is as you take this very healthy swig of water. Are you going to finish that to the end? Oh, I definitely so will. Disgusting. Uh-huh, of course. <laughs> it's your own backwash. It's me. I'm Van. I like, I go, how can I, I can drink behind myself. I don't know, man. I'm not, I'm not comfortable enough with wow. myself yet. <laughs> Sorry. Mm-hmm. I know. The the things you learned, mm-hmm. right? Now you you learned about my strip club habit and now you've learned I, I will go to strip clubs, but backwash apparently too much too for much. me. Yeah, there you go. This is a little too much. <laughs> this is this is this is the life that I live, the duality that I live. Um anyway, so uh season two, uh episode seven, backwash, as I said, the title of it just instantly made me sort of 
you know, throw up a little bit in my mouth, but very applicable here for all the things that go on in this episode. And uh, it's funny because the season two, much like season one, was also accused of being slow. But to me, this is like moving um, pretty fast as they're continuing to put all the pieces uh, together. So, Van, tell me some of your takeaways from Backwash. Uh, It was a seething episode. It kind of crawled. Um, it was almost like a catch your breath episode from the one that we had before where it seemed like every scene was so consequential. Uh, every scene was so weighty um, in episode six. Episode seven uh, never kind of gets quite to that um, that fever pitch of episode six, but every scene has like a, 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 a sort of burning under to it Um that kind of you feel like it's a, it's a, it's almost like a setup. It's a change up of an episode a little bit. Uh, it seems like most of the characters here uh, were drawing lines. Very some very clear lines were drawn, and the shape of season two. And this is kind of what The Wire and a lot of great shows do: is they give you an episode like six where you get stuff that's so concretely important that happens. Um, like at the end of six, obviously we lose D'Angelo, and here. It's setting up the pieces of the puzzle um, for that, for, excuse me, for the ramifications of that. Like, you know, you see the funeral, the, you see a great scene in the beginning where uh, Bodhi does more to sum up his thoughts on D'Angelo Barksdale in that one scene than any of their interaction in the first, in the whole first season. He really kind of gives you his feeling of it. Um, and that's just another example of kind of what was going on underneath their relationship. And I feel like a lot of the scenes in here have to do with the underneath. Even when Stringer goes to console Brianna, uh, there's something under there, something under the surface that's seething, something under the surface uh, that's happening um, in that relationship. And this episode is kind of setting us up to discover all of the things that were behind what it was that we were seeing in episode seven. And for that, uh, it, you know, if you watched it the first time, you could look at it as a throwaway episode, but in context with the entire season and everything that's going on, uh, a lot of important shit happens. A lot of, like a lot of important shit happens uh, in this, it's almost like a file this away later episode. Uh, you know, and we say that a lot about season two, but um, this one particularly, uh, I really enjoyed the rewatch on it. What were your thoughts? Um, so I was I was more or less wrapped up in in two very strong performances by um, Chris Bauer, who plays Frank Sabaka, mm-hmm. and Idris Elba, who is. Y'all know how I feel about Stringer Bell up into this point. Uh, but I never, I, I hope people understand this. Stringer Bell, the character, is a fuckboy and annoying as shit and a whole lot of other things. But uh, as a character, he's unbelievable. Idris Elba's portrayal of him is unreal. The acting performance, which is The acting performance is unreal. I mean, th- that is why my level of anger is so high because Idris Elba does such a good job in playing Stringer Bell. But nevertheless... This is where you see, I think we've always known what Stringer Bell was, but increasingly his level of being diabolical 
has just ramped up. Mm-hmm. It just keeps going up to the point where you just like, he. there is no end point to this. There is no bottom with him, right? Mm-hmm. With Frank Sabaka, and we're going to take a deeper dive into him um, in a moment, and I know that we did him as a deep dive earlier in the season, but this is a different Frank Sabaka than what the we saw before. The character has changed. It, the character has, has, to me, made some dramatic terms, uh, turns that make him seem not as selfless as I think we first sort of envisioned or we first sort of put his character in perspective. So you have two people who are in many ways clinging on, clinging to worlds um, that are kind of withering a little bit um, and trying to assert their power to prevent in many ways, what is, uh, what is the inevitable. And uh, just, uh, I think the brilliance of season two overall, and it was particularly drilled down in this one is about the class divide. And th- this kind of, you know, David Simon throughout The Wire is attacking the fallacy of the American dream. And he has some very pinpoint scenes in this that do a very direct job of sort of getting us to think about, critically think about the fact that, um, you know, it, it doesn't, there are certain things that we've been told that matter that will change our fate that never change our fate. Mm-hmm. So while that may seem like a very hopeless kind of outlook on things, uh, it nevertheless, I think, is so it's it's something that just will hold up forever. And it just gets back to why this series itself is is so timeless. So seeing these two characters, you know, think about the wire that they're so good at is like they can throw 75 characters at you that will have, you know, little bits and pieces of importance and make them all dynamic. But what I notice more in season two is that I see a lot more, and I mean this positively, I see a lot more ball hogging. Meaning like I see a lot more episodes, it feels like that are, they may have plots that move in different directions, but I see a lot more, okay, this is the focus of this episode, as opposed to I think it was maybe a little more even um, in it. Because I mean, think about it. It was a really brave thing for David Simon to do. We got a whole bunch of McNulty in season one. Up until this point in season two, it's been very little of him. And so that was a bold move, in addition to the bold move period of just pretty much introducing a new cast. So if you were thinking that Dominic West is maybe the most, you know, uh, maybe the the star of The Wire, he just completely blew those assertions away by by introducing these new characters and making them very compelling. Yeah, I mean, and when you look at McNulty from that standpoint, not even taking him out of the show, just really relegating him to a supporting character. And I've never seen that yeah. done ever before. You know, you see mm. you see shows, of course, all the time where a mainstay is either killed or, you know, uh, they go away for a season or whatever. But you never see them kind of play the background. You never see somebody go from, I guess, Jordan to Pippen or even Jordan to Horace Grant. McNulty went from Jordan to Horace Grant. And from season, I don't even know if it was Horace to be honest. Like this might be Steve Kerr. Stay ready, hey, be like for you. real. Don't, 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 don't in any way minimize what Horace Grant meant to the Bills. But to the, to the I, Bills. no, I'm saying that he meant that that's inflating oh, McNulty's role. Like in this, I, and the only reason why yeah. I said that is because Horace Grant been going off these last couple of weeks. Oh, yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. As a as 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 a Pistons fan, I forgot. I'm still bitter Horace and Gr- I'm still Horace pitty. Grant been really getting pissed off. We don't and Horace looks like, slow as hell in the in the documentary. <laughs> we don't want Horace rolling up on us. Yeah. But no, uh, I mean he was talking real tough. But I was like, you ain't had none of that smoke for Jordan when he was telling your ass when to eat. Exactly. But anyway, I'm over All it. Right. Uh, <laughs> oh, but yeah. Um, 
a large portion of the seething that I was talking about is, you know, people that are struggling to hold on to their power. I think, I think also something that's interesting about Stringer is the reason why we're seeing uh, an increase in sort of Stringer's plotting, planning, and diabolical nature is because he has an increased role. See, another thing that The Wire does so much better than other shows is it grows the characters. Not just grows them dramatically, it grows them in responsibility. You start to see the pressures that come uh, with added responsibilities. And you also start to see what you lose the more you gain. And uh, Stringer is now in a situation to where he doesn't have to run anything past Avon. He's not asking permission as much. He can hide sort of the things that he is doing. So what's happening very slowly this is very important, is that the Barstow organization is taking on the personality and the shape of Stringer Bell. And so it's becoming a little bit more sneaky. It's becoming a little bit more uh, like uh, underhanded. Avon was overt in the way that he conducted his business, okay? Not overt in his character, because he stayed behind the scenes, but he was overt in the way that he cut, uh, conducted his business. Stringer is all secrets and shadows. He's clandestine in the way that he does it. So you start to see a little bit more of that cloak and dagger stuff coming and it has effects. There are ramifications on people outside of him. People are getting hurt um, by the way Stringer runs things. And there are people that, to be honest with you, are close to Stringer. And you also start to sort of ask the question, is anyone close to Stringer? No, right. is it, I mean, not at all. Right, is anyone close to Stringer? These questions are, you know, are going to be answered pretty soon, but you start to see that with him, it's the mechanical bottom line, man. That's it. Yeah, um, it's, we both made note of this um, when Avon was, was, when he first went to jail, I believe that's how season one kind of ended on that image mm-hmm. of Stringer sitting there, you know, Avon's in jail, and he's set up in the new shop in the funeral home. The look on Stringer Bell's face is not a look of, damn, my homeboy, he caught a bid and all this. The look is satisfaction. Like he's happy it wound up this way because he's been wanting to be in charge. And what we're seeing evolve in season two is that despite the fact that he was happy to play Pippin to Avon's Jordan, he really wanted to be Jordan. Okay, Mm -hmm. this is more, I told you, this is not really a uh, Pippen-Jordan situation, if you think about it. This is more of a Russell Westbrook-Kevin Durant. I don't know if that's true. This is more of a Russell, I think it is. I mean, because, okay, look, when Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook, when that partnership fell apart, Mm -hmm. what we started to hear from both of them is that, yeah, we know how it looked, but we weren't really as tight as y'all thought we were. Right. Okay. Like we were, you know, there's a, there was a level of, of of respect there when they played together, certainly, but there was some competition going on underneath that, that led to this very bitter fallout. And in part, because, you know, obviously, in fact, the more I think about it, just saying it out loud, this is so Russell Westbrook and Kevin Durant, because look, I, I think Russell Westbrook, what annoyed him and a lot of basketball fans and certainly Oklahoma City fans is that he went to the organization that had just beaten them, right? Mm-hmm. Avon, 
you will get to this in a moment. You see his reaction when Prop Joe is is going state. Okay, Prop Joe is Golden State. And Ava and Stringer's like, yo, I need to get with Golden State if I really want to do this thing the way I need to do this thing. If I want to play the, the type of playing style that I that I that uh, that is accustomed to my gifts. Because mm. you know, Stringer thinks of himself as a businessman, right? right. He thinks of somebody who's running uh not a drug organization, but like a Fortune 500 company, because you know, that's what his community college told him. So <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Because you know, because he learned there, mm-hmm. you know, in his two in his two hundred level macroeconomics class, mm-hmm. that's what that's what you learn there. So him looking at it that way, he's thinking, well, Prop Joe is more what I want to do, right? That's how I want to run business, the way Prop Joe runs things. So he want to be with Golden State. He done with Oklahoma City. See, just saying. Think about it. I I I get it. A couple of things. I, I like it. A couple of things. Number one, I think there's a difference, and I hope that. Uh, KD and Russ don't mind me getting into their heads a little bit. I think that there's a difference here. One is that Stringer and Avon are actually close. They really are. They've known each other since they were children. And like we like right. we learned that they've known each other for a long time since they were children, right? I think what ends up happening is that, you know, like it, it's not so much that these guys aren't as close as with what we think they are because they are close. I think that in life people grow together or they grow apart. And when Avon's world is steadily getting smaller, obviously because he goes to prison, while Stringer's world is suddenly is steadily getting bigger. And he has to, oftentimes when we see brothers and sisters go to jail, one of the tough things about maintaining these relationships when you have somebody that's inside is you have to continue living life in their absence and they have to live a whole new life. So a lot of times, if you've ever had somebody that's inside that you're close to, they start getting on you about uh, uh, how much you can come visit, about how involved you can be, about all of that stuff because you're still living life in the same way that you had to, trying to feel their absence while they're adjusting to a new world. That's kind of what Stringer is going to. I don't think Stringer would have ever bucked on Avon. Ever. Had this had Really? Had, had he not gone no, to jail? I don't think he would have. I don't, know, I don't think he would have ever bucked on Avon had Avon not gone to jail. Because if Avon doesn't go to jail, they like if Avon doesn't go to jail, they don't lose their connect. So there's no reason to go to Prop Joe. Okay? There's no reason to go to Prop Joe or to go anywhere. They don't lose their connect and they keep doing what they're doing. Actually, I think it's actually easier for Stringer to convince Avon to go legit to change up if it happens naturally, organically. The thing with Avon is Avon doesn't ever want to feel like he has to do something. So when Stringer comes to Avon and asks him to take Prop Joe's package, it it seems as if Avon doesn't have a choice. No one's going to dictate to Avon Barstale what he's ha- what he has to do. Because Avon Barsdale fights for what he for what for what he gets. So Van, I think you're being naive about that. I think it is. I think there, any friction in their relationship was inevitable. It was inevitable because Stringer wanted to move into a world that Avon was not familiar, wasn't trying to get familiar, and I don't think I think he liked the lifestyle and the the ebb and flow and the hustle and bustle of the drug trade. If Stringer's trying to move past that or at least move it in a safer, much safer direction. But for Avon, his street cred, his street presence, 
all that means something to him. And that shit don't mean the same to Stringer necessarily. And so I think they just would have been at odds. And plus the variable also is D'Angelo. At some point, that situation was going to come to a head and put them on potentially opposite sides. The way that Stringer was moving is that he was setting all of this stuff in motion. And I just don't think that Avon would have been down because some of their friction started with what happened with Orlando. Is that there was something that was happening there that I don't think would have been preventable regardless of jail time. But see, here's the thing about the what happened with Orlando, right? What happened with Orlando was actually evidence of Stringer's incompetence. And correct. And, and to and and really further tethered him to Avon. Now, if you're telling me that Avon at some point would have would have felt a certain way about Stringer, that's a little different. What I'm saying right now is that I don't think Stringer would have ever rebelled against Avon. I think Avon was a- Avon runs the street and Avon runs his thing in a little bit different of a way. What happened was when Avon was gone, okay, in Avon's absence, Stringer started exploring different things to a different degree. Avon really was Stringer's structure in terms of staying in the world of West Baltimore, staying in the drug trade. He was the one that went, hey, 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 come back. The job's here. Hey, the job's here. Hey, this is what we're doing. This is what we're doing. But with Avon gone, Stringer gets next to Prop Joe. We're going to see this. Uh, Stringer starts figuring out how the co-op works. The co-op works in a different way. It seems to work well. It seems to make money. He starts to see new things, things that he probably wouldn't have seen or had time to delve into or explore if Avon was still on the street and the cops weren't on them in the way that they were. So look, it 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 just I, I I you you have a point, but I just some things are just inevitable, and it's like that's why I use the Kevin Durant Russell Westbrook analogy. Kevin Durant was looking at Golden State sharing the ball, the type of basketball that he wanted to play, and he's looking over there at Russ, no disrespect, chucking up forty five shots and shooting about the game, <laughs> insisting half of them from three, where he is not a great three point shooter. Them holding the ball play, is it, is it my turn to win the game? Your turn to win the game in close moments. And he was looking at this like, all right, well, they got the towers over there and I got the product. Can I say, Let me go. I'll, I'll, I'll just give you one more difference. One more difference between the two. Okay. Russ and KD never won. So Russ and KD never won. They didn't have a championship. Stringer and Avon were West Baltimore champions. They had two or three banners. They had been running things for a while. I wonder even if Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook's relationship would have been different had they three-peated, had they, had, had they beaten Miami, had they actually even gotten back there, had they not lost... How does that change? Oh, you could even say had they beaten Golden State because remember they were they were up in that series. They were up in that series. Had they beaten had they beaten Golden State? Because then I look at that situation as KD at least going, yo, this is a way that can win. It might not be optimal, but this is a way that can win. I think what happened is once again not to crawl into Kevin Durant's mind is he looked at that and he went, yeah, the guy's a dynamic player. The guy's this. And, I, and I'm this, but like this way is not going to get me to the championship that I need. And I don't think, I think, I think Avon and Stringer were winning. But I, look, this is our first major disagreement. And I, I want to know what the people think. I think this is a core disagreement uh, in, in wire lore. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, we'll move on to 
what happens in backwash uh, episode seven here. All right. Uh, Nick Sabaka really out there thinking he need no brown, man. Like he, for somebody who was very reluctant to enter the drug trade, he sure does seem to have an affinity mm. um, for getting involved. He sure seems to have a knack for these sort of things. It was also interesting about seeing him transform from working man to Nino Brown is notice that all the shit that he told Ziggy not to do, he's suddenly doing. Yeah. All the shit. Flashing money, got a new truck, telling a old girl, let's let's bump it up like the Jeffersons and, and get us a, a two-bedroom. I'm like, that's real funny. Yeah. That you suddenly getting real comfortable with this money. Um, now the detail having unearthed the pattern of the missing cargo, they start putting a lot of the pieces together. They basically, they lay a trap for the dock workers, you know, making them think that they've given up on the case, uh, which BD helps them sell in particular so that they can eye what's going on. Cause they have rightly suspected that this is more than just about girls in a can, that there's some other goings on at the port, um, that, tie in the Sabaka family even deeper into a life of crime. There's the aftermath of D'Angelo's death. We got the home going, of course. Um, you know, Avon feeling guilty. Uh, guilty slash angry, Kinda. I would say. Not Kinda. just guilty. I don't think there was much guilt. Yeah. A- a- Avon. Well, yeah. You think there's more anger he, than anything? Well, he lashed out at D'Angelo uh, like after he passed away. He lashed out at him. Um, so I didn't see very much guilt. And you also saw for the first time, some of the major cracks in Avon's character during that scene. We'll talk about it later. But yeah, that, that was a very important scene to me. Uh, you have Prop Joe, uh, as we kind of went over a little bit, but he proposes to Stringer an offer he cannot refuse. Mm. Uh, his dope in their towers, territory for dope. Um, as Prop Joe so eloquently put it, you got the towers, I got what goes in them. Later for all that bullshit. <laughs> One of the best uh, deal propositions I've ever heard. Now you know why they call him Prop Joe. Uh, after uh, Lester kind of checks Daniels, appeals to his sense of duty, he decides to take on these 14 murders of the girls in the cargo can. And I love how Lester told Daniels, because it was very reminiscent of the speech Daniels gave to Carver when he said, you, you let this pass, you got to ask yourself how you want to live your life day to day. And it... Uh, as I said, it reminded me a lot of what Daniels told Carver um, when he said, hey, you got to decide, is it about me or is it about the work? And it was funny having given that speech that you see a lot of kind of the old Daniels returning, warring with the new Daniels or who he's trying to be uh, as a leader as he um, kind of pushes to get this unit on even more solid ground than it already is. From The Ringer, I'm Tyler R. Times. When I spoke to NFL star Cam Newton in January, his mindset was clear. I want my whole career to be in Charlotte. Cam won't be getting that wish. He was released by the Carolina Panthers in March. Cam is a complex figure, and my interest in him goes far beyond his exuberant smile and transcendent style of play. Cam broke the glass ceiling in American athletics, ascending to a place in the sport that few black quarterbacks have ever reached, making his fall that much more dramatic. Over the past year, I've traveled the country speaking to coaches and teammates, friends and family, reporters, and even briefly to the man himself, trying to unravel the enigma that is Cam Newton. I uncover contradictions at every turn, 
How can the hardest worker on the team be depicted as a bad leader? And how can a franchise icon with the NFL MVP and Super Bowl appearance on his resume be so abruptly cast aside? The Ringer NFL Show presents The Cam Chronicles. The series premieres Monday, July 13th. All right, now we dive into the character um, that we've been talking about so far in this episode, but want to take a deeper look at Frank Sabatka Part Two. Hmm. So, what is uh, what do you make, Van, of this new? I won't call him the new Frank Sabatka because this was always already there, but we have now been, I think, better exposed to the full Frank Sabatka. I think the motivations are there. There are a couple of scenes here that uh, you know Frank Sabatka. Where we learn a little bit more about him. Yeah. We talk about the scene where Frank Frank Sabaka is talking to Brucey the lobbyist. And for the first time, there's something we've we've discussed the fact that Frank's dedication to the sort of generational aspect of the port workers is noble. It's noble that he cares over and over again uh about the men and their families and their sons. Uh, and their fathers that are going to continue to work at the port. For the first time in that scene, you start to see that maybe there's something lacking in Sabatka that has that is contributing to the fact that there's no upward mobilization for the port workers. That maybe Frank is doing more to maintain the status quo of their working classhood that he thinks that he is that, um, you know, because when he's talking to the lobbyist and the lobbyist is talking about the sacrifices that his grandfather had to make, that he's making for his son to go to Princeton, him and Frank are sitting across from the same table from one another. They're sitting there in close proximity. He's not suggesting that he's doing anything that Frank Tabaka can't do. And that's the age old American argument about, system versus meritocracy, sacrifice versus hard work, the entire thing. How do you get to where you're going? Is Frank Sabaka and what he's doing to get these guys a couple of days a week, is he hurting them more than he's helping them? Um, You can tell also that there's some resentment, obviously, uh, easily uh, from him towards people who are upper class or towards people who have been mo- been able to move out of being working class. Frank Sabaka doesn't look at you and say, hey, your son's going to Princeton. How amazing. He, look at, he looks at you and goes, hey, your son is going to Princeton. Fuck you. My kid's got to work at the dots. <laughs> then, then, then he's going to turn into a father that works at the dock. Then he's going to turn into a grandfather that works at the dock. So whatever I have to do to get over on you I'm justified in doing it because you have all the advantages that I don't have while simultaneously not seeing that some of the advantages that you want in life, you have to kind of create them. You have to kind of work towards those goals. If you're not working towards the goal of sending your your kids to an Ivy League school, you probably never will. Now, that's not to say that everyone has an equal opportunity to go to Ivy League school because they fucking don't. But it's, it's for the first time you're starting to see that maybe um, the system, the way of life 
that Frank Sabaka has allegiance to is keeping him where he is and that he might be hurting the guys by floating them. He might be hurting the guys by being a Band-Aid for them uh, more than he actually is helping them. And you start to wonder in these different scenes if he's starting to wonder whether or not he's doing more harm than good. So um, I'm going to push back on you on this one because I think what really got exposed in that conversation with, uh, you know, Bruce, the lobbyist, is that Frank Zabaka has no vision. And part of the reason that he's in the situation that he's in, both with the union and also with his his own child with Ziggy, is because he was so dedicated and so committed to a certain way of life that he refused to let his own children, he refused to even see what their actual gifts were because he was dedicated to that way of life. And the difference in their two stories is very simple. Bruce tells a story about how his great-grandfather was a knife sharpener. His great-grandfather, as many parents do, wanted better for his own children. So he never sat there and preached to them about becoming a knife sharpener. Frank Zabaka did the opposite because he held what he did in this high esteem that he told his kids and told his family and offspring and whoever that the only way of life to go was to work on his docs, was to work on these docs that they have been doing for generations and generations. Meanwhile, he's got a son that shows no aptitude to do this whatsoever, but Frank Sabaka doesn't give a fuck. He's like, you working on these docs because that's what we do. Now, is that, this is not to deny or pretend that everything about the American dream is clearly not true and that there, there are class limitations, race limitations, gender limitations. But in this case, the limitation was Frank Sabaka because he... Ziggy, as we've seen throughout this, he's an idiot. He's incompetent. But his incompetence is a result of him being in a situation that he's not good at. What have we seen him be good at? Computers, right? Mm -hmm. He knew that shit. He knows electronics. That's where his aptitude was leaning. His father, so busy trying to save a dying industry, did not realize this and forced him into a way of life that he doesn't want, which is why his son is resentful and can't stand him. Mm. So, oh no, no, I just no, think at this, I, no, I mean, I, I just think really that's what's been exposed here is that Frank Sabaka was selfish about wanting this way of life and wanting it forever to the point that he passed down his narrow mindedness and this um, this resentment to his own children. Yeah, that's what he did. Yeah, I don't think we're saying different things at all. I, I, I think I don't think that it was necessary his necessarily his selfishness um, that. Uh, that made him believe in the docs. I think he, it's his religion. I think a, a lot of times when you go to different places, for example, um, my <laughs> personal story, my family, they're all cement finishers, subcontractors, the entire family, the whole family. My father is a cement finisher. My uncle was a cement finisher. My uncle Craig is a cement finisher. Uncle Jimmy is a cement They're all cement finishers, subcontractors, right? And I remember the moment, a hot, blistering Louisiana day where I had a varsity blues moment. Okay. I had a Jonathan Moxon. I don't want your life moment. Okay. <laughs> and, and it was like, it, it wasn't like, so I'm sitting there and we pouring cement and it's about one o'clock and the sun is destroying. I got cement in my boots. <laughs> I remember saying, yo, I'm never doing this. 
And I remember the look on their faces. The look on their faces. First of all, no one had ever asked me to be a semen finisher. But just me saying that it wasn't for me was a value judgment to them. I don't think my father wanted me to be a semen finisher. By the way, there's nothing wrong with this fantastic work. They make a lot of money. But I just think me saying it, this is not what I want. I can't see myself with with semen on my rubber boots in the summer every single day, at any time of the year. It created a value judgment to them where they felt less than. They felt that I was saying I was going to go on to be something better than what they are. Now, while all... Or that they felt like you thought you were saying you were better than them. Right. Then, then, right? Now, Mm -hmm. while while all parents want their children to go on and do better than they did, they don't want their children to ever tell them that. They don't want their children to say, I want to be better than you. They want to put their children in a situation to be better than them. They don't want to hear, I don't want to be you. They don't want to hear that because it makes them feel like they didn't do everything that they could to provide for their children and they know all the sacrifices that they made for them. So I think that what the, the way that Sabaka looks at the docs or anything like that is the best opportunity to keep everybody employed. You're working at a you're working at a time and you're looking at a place. He doesn't think that those guys actually have the capability to go to Princeton. He don't he doesn't think that they're Princeton type guys. They always talk about their flaws. They talk about their flaws more than anything. Sabaka in the first episode talks about how small his penis is. He says he's got three inch penis. So the jokes are what they can't do. Even in the police department in Baltimore, the jokes are how stupid they are. None of these people feel privileged. They don't feel advantaged. They don't feel like they have any advantages. So he thinks the best way to keep an average guy working is to keep the port moving the way that it's supposed to move. What he's missing is not everybody, like you say, is even good at that. And probably, most likely, overwhelmingly, they're not all average. But if you're expecting Frank Sabaka to start a scholarship fund for some kids so they don't have to go work at the docks, it's not going to happen because he's religiously connected to the docks. He thinks the docks are not a, a, a workplace, but a salvation for working class Americans. And a lot of times, upward mobility is breaking out, not even upward mobility, lateral mo- mobility, just doing something different is breaking out of what you think you know. And Frank, maybe you can't do that. Well, or better yet, what you think you deserve. What you think you and deserve. I don't, yeah. And I don't know if uh, Frank Sabaka ever thought that his family, his offspring, the generations of Sabaka ever deserved mm-hmm. more than just working on the dot. And that has created a, a issue for him. Now, it's one thing, uh, you said something interesting a moment ago about whether or not all of his actions are are doing more harm than good. We saw an, a real example of that because him and Nat are in this meeting where they're talking about automation and about how they basically will eliminate some of the guys that he's trying to keep employed. But the other side of that is him fighting against that is also putting them in harm's way because we see what happens to new Charles. He loses a leg, mm-hmm. Right. And that's something, had they been automated, New Charles wouldn't have been there to lose a leg. He also wouldn't have had a job, though. He also wouldn't have had a job, but but that gets to the tension of, of what he feels in that 
these are guys who have committed to this life, but it's a dangerous life. Mm -hmm. It's not one, it's a certain life expectancy when you're doing what they're doing and living that lifestyle. On the other hand, if you allow uh, robots to do work that on some level you all might be even be able to see as inhumane, then what is the way of life? But that gets back to, again, my larger issue with all of this is that Frank is so tunnel visioned. He cannot see a way of life outside of the ports. Mm -hmm. And hey, you can blame that on society and say, well, he was never taught differently. His people before him were never taught differently. And therefore, it's been passed down. But as Bruce pointed out, all it took is for one somebody in his family to say, I tell you what's not going to happen. I'm not going to sit up here and glorify this damn knife sharpening like this, this the wave. Mm -hmm. That's what's not going to happen. Right. All right. The rest of y'all, it's going to be a different fate that I'm going to decide for you. Um, you know, in this moment. So that's why I, I contend that in this episode, you kind of see a little bit of the selfishness of Frank Savaka. Whereas before, I think that there was at least this desire to understand his per perspective, even though it was also outdated. I mean, it's one thing, again, if you're, you're middle-aged men or people who've been at a job 20 years, I mean, let's just be real. It's going to be impossible to just come and come at them and say, hey, y'all need to learn a new way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right. You've been doing this for 20 years. You have no skills or probably very few skills outside of what you've been doing every day. It's one thing to try to protect them, but to encourage somebody of Nikki or Ziggy's age to encourage um, somebody of Nikki or Ziggy's age that, hey, this is this is what you have signed up for. It's like, what? Are you serious? Yeah. Like that's just ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, and and the and the grasp for power is again something that I don't think was as obvious as it was in this episode when he's talking to Nat, and Nat is like, "Your time is up." And I love, you know, I you know I'm gonna save my commentary about. Um, them, uh, them juxtapos uh, juxtaposing rather racial uh, slurs. The 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 racial slurs. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm gonna say that commentary. All right, I'm gonna save that right. one. But you know, um, it just to me that was part of that selfishness. Like, is this really about saving some union union workers, or is this about Frank Sabaka being able to stay? It in is power? about Frank Sabaka being able to stay in power. Um, on another like, I, I think this is the last thing I'll say on Sabaka, but. I think one thing that's different between either him and even the knife sharpeners that we're talking about is that if you're a knife sharpener, um, that's what you do. And you're using that like I, I would have I'm sure that there was a bunch of knife sharpeners, but th him trying to preserve the port is more than him trying to preserve the occupation. They drink together their way of life. They're, it's a family. It's a gigantic union. Mm -hmm. It's a it's a brotherhood. It's all of those things, and for a lot of people, it's hard. There, it's one thing that if if your job, you know, provides economic stability for your family and your children, it's another thing if your job provides your identity. If you come to some place and you and you do something so that your children won't have to do it, it's because you understand. That at some point to get to the type of family that, that you want to have to establish in a new place or wherever you are, that you're going to have to evolve out of it. Um, if you believe in a way of life, if you like that, forget about it. If you fucking love that, then you want your children to be a part of that because you think it's the right thing. But then when you look around and either they're not good at it 
or it's been 40 years and nobody's moved forward, it's kind of on you as to why you're stuck in the same place. And I think watching this season is the first time that is, is watching Frank Sabak in the season is probably the first time that he realized that he's maybe devoted his life to something that hasn't benefited him as much as he thought it would. Yeah. I mean, it, it is, um, um, it's a realization that I'm sure would force you to unpack other things in your life that you really don't want to unpack and to know you poured that much of your, your life, your time generations into something that ultimately isn't going to last is a very, harsh reality, but nevertheless, it's the one um, where that Frank Savaka is left with. And I feel like because he comes or this realization is constantly smacking him in the face, uh, that that influences greatly some of his actions the rest of this season. Because uh, I think he was always trying to be sort of like, no, really, I'm a good guy despite this this happening. But I feel like he gets more bold in um, some of the extracurricular activities that he's participating on, uh, participating in, um, and the the port itself, I guess, by extension. All right, uh, let's talk about some of the scenes that mm. stood out to you, uh, Van. What do you have? I'm sure you have a long list because there were a lot of really good ones in this. A lot one. of good scenes here. So uh, I love the opening scene of Bodie buying the flowers. I, I do too. I, I love <laughs> it's it. So great. I love it. It's great acting by JD Williams, by the way. Great acting by JD Williams. Um, it, yeah. It's just a. It's it's. It's a scene that just, it's straight, curt, right to the point, tells you exactly the way Bodie felt about D'Angelo, but also tells you about, uh, just once again, Bodie's a soldier. He believes in a certain code. He believes in a certain rule of ethics. And even though he didn't feel a certain way about D'Angelo, he's going to respect him in a certain way uh, b- because they stood together for a while. Love that. Yeah. yeah I mean, what what his his line was, when you stand with him, you got to stand with him stand to the end. Stand with him end. to the end. And he, and he does that. Um, so I love that scene. Uh, I love the scene with Avon and Stringer. Um, when Avon is telling Stringer that it's not on you, I really enjoy that scene because Stringer knows who it's on. And I think that's actually a genuine moment of friendship between them. Like he sees his boy in emotional peril and he's trying to reassure him that it's not on him because he really knows it's on him. And he honestly doesn't want Avon to feel bad about it. You didn't make this decision. Uh, uh, the Ziggy Love Child scene. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I also realized something. That Love Child, that little ding, 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 ding that they use that sample in Janet Jackson, you want this. Like, I, like, like, like... Oh, look at that. Right, like, I, like, I realized that, like, I heard... A little bit of... That counts as trivia. That counts as right, trivia. I, I, I heard that, and I was like, where do I know that from? And I actually, I figured out it's from Janet Jackson, one of my favorite Janet Jackson songs. Favorite video, too. Great video if you're a 12-year-old boy. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, like, so, uh, the Ziggy Love Child scene, hysterical, hilarious. Uh, what else do we got here? We have um, the tennis ball scene. Great. Fantastic. Love that. Herc and Carver are the most, um, I mean, they're so mind-numbingly incompetent. And it's amazing and fascinating how many times in The Wire their incompetence actually helps them stumble upon something mm-hmm. that is important. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Which this this clearly does. Inspector Gadget. You know how Inspector Gadget was all will always yeah. just fuck around and solve a crime? Like, Inspector Gadget was never, really it was his little niece or whatever, but Inspector Gadget just kind of being in the right place at the right time 
was completely incompetence. That's kind of them. Uh, two scenes, though, that I really love. I get down to the bottom. Obviously, the Tang scene between Frank yep. Sabaka and, and, and Bruce. I think that's the, Brucey, that's the best scene. I think that's, I think that's the best scene of this that's episode. That's the best scene personally. of this episode. It's the one that tells yeah. the most about the episode. Uh, it's the one that, it's the weightiest of the episode. I think that's the best scene of the episode. Although, when Nikki Sabaka is telling Frog how he's white, after we discuss Frank Sabaka... That's what I had on my list. Right. Maybe I'll just go ahead and do it right now. Go ahead and do it. Yeah, think, let's get into I it. I think Nikki Sabaka is the most purely racist character in the history of The Wire. I think we talk about... I think we talk about other guys that are... I'm trying to think of the other racists who might be in contention talk, before I get... But, but I, my inclination is you're right, mm. but I just want to make sure I think through this. Well, we talked about... Ahead. Some of the racism of Levy. We've talked about some of the racism of Rawls. We've talked about, uh, but when you look at Nikki Sabaka, Nikki Sabaka doesn't just throw away the occasional N word. He has oh, a no. it's clear regular. view of the black people that he thinks are worthless. Uh, and when he's talking to Frog, and obviously Frog is the the heavyweight champion of cultural appropriation in the wire. But when, when he's talking to Frog, he makes a distinction between black people and white people, and he makes a value judgment. He says, I don't act like this. I don't do like this. I don't, I don't, com I don't comport myself like this because I'm a white man. And he seems to imply that we're better than this. That, and, and, what, and a lot of times in The Wire, you don't ever get that. You get cops are better than criminals or criminals are better than cops or politicians are better than each other or, you know, people that play the game straight are better than snitches. But Nikki seems to think I don't act like a black person or I don't act like an N-word because I'm better than that. And that's what his little monologue talking to Frog is about. And I never caught it before, um, but he seems to look down on black people. Oh, no, totally. Yeah. Like he, think about it. He, the way he backpedaled into the drug trade, he was so resistant at first because that was his whole reasoning was that I'm not one of them. Right. And even when he was trying to approach Cheese, that was his entire mentality. Like, I'll be damned if I'm like any of them, even though I'm basically doing the same thing. The, the frog interaction is really interesting because he doesn't have a problem with the fact that he's a street corner drug dealer. He has a problem with the fact that he feels like he's abandoned his natural white yeah. identity. Well, yeah, so that's why he reminds him where he grew up, his background, like, dude, you white, and you are out here, in his mind, perpetrating the worst fraud because you're acting as if you being born white and whiteness wasn't good enough for you and you had to act like one of them which clearly is not on the same level of whiteness. Uh, I mean, just as you were talking and I was just thinking about it, uh, Nick Sabaka very clearly is the white supremacist of the white. He is, like he is, very, yeah. he is very clearly far and above everybody else because he just seems to think that because he has different reasonings and they're really not all that different, but he very much sees that his way of life 
is much more important, much more superior than those of that he's dealing with that has to do business with. And it's just like, oh, so even though without these drugs, you wouldn't have a pot to piss in. Mm-hmm. You go sit up here and judge everybody else that is basically in it for the same reasons that you are. Right. Um, you know, like I don't know if Nikki Sabaka would be in this if he didn't have to deal with the Greeks. He's dealing with other white folks. Like if he had to go through Pop Joe, he probably never would have gotten the drug trade. Right. And even the way like directly through him. Right. And even the way he kind of talked to Prop Joe when in, in the scene mm-hmm. in with Prop Joe, like, I don't fuck with Nikki. Like, like you know what I mean? Like, like oh, he deserves that. Yeah, definitely. yeah. I don't, I don't fuck with Nikki, man. Like, like Nikki. Listen, I'm okay in the show with someone going to the race as well a couple of times, getting some mayonnaise and drinking it. Nikki's gone there a little bit too much for me, uh, and I, I get it. I get that everybody has their biases and stuff like that. But in that one scene, I was like, that was, that was a little bit. That showed me a little bit more about how he really views people than anything else. Right. You know? Another powerful scene to me was the interaction between, I would say all the interactions between Daniels and his wife, Marla, um, mm. which one big father's away for later, right? Mm-hmm. But in particular, when she when he comes to her and explains why he decided to take the 14 more murders, which would seemingly for a lot of people seem like, dude, you dumb for this, for taking on these murders. But it gets to the core of Daniel still wanting to do good police work, even though he's caught in a political system within his department where he has to play politics and try to be a cop at the same time. And a lot of time, a lot of times those are conflicting visions. But when he tells her, you know, that he loves the job, he couldn't help it. He's got to take this case. And she reminds him, um, when he's talking about like, you know, the reason I fell in love with you is because, you know, you have perspective, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, you know what I fell in love with? Your ambition. Where'd that man go? I was like, damn. You know, I mean, I felt like the women, we won the last episode and we just took some L's in this yeah. one. But mm-hmm. it's like, so she's basically like, damn these dead women. Damn actually doing police work that'll help people. I need you to just sit up here and politically play the game so that we can have a more comfortable lifestyle. And, I, you know, it, a thought occurred to me that the reason that maybe Daniels took the money early in his career was a little bit on the take or robbed it was because of her ass. Ding, ding, ding. Like you start to see yeah, people's was, motivations. Maybe she wanted right. she wanted uh, you know, to go to the Four Seasons brunch or something like that. And poor Cedric couldn't do it on a sergeant's salary. So he was grabbing at straws a little bit, man. See, I'm glad that you know that behind every man's mistake is a woman that's putting ideas in his head. You feel what I'm saying, dog? Because, you know, we be out here doing our things, trying to be good men, trying to be good brothers, trying to be good people. And we we come along and And ruin it, right? (laughs) These Delilahs come around and always want to make us cut our hair off. You feel what I'm saying? I'm glad that you see that now, sister. Yeah. I got my goofy on. Get, get that on. toxic masculinity out there, man. Get it out. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's just like, okay. I mean, that was uh, that was a real defining, you know, moment in their relationship. Because when you're, you know, you know this, uh, when you're in a relationship, and especially if you're passionate about something, and your partner kind of shits on that passion, 
And that's what she like. He's coming to her in a vulnerable position of having done something that was completely against the grain of the political game plan. He was purposely trying to follow for her ass. There's only there's only one exception to that rule. I'm just going to do a short PSA right now. There's a lot of brothers out there right now. I'm going to look directly at you. okay? And your spouse isn't supporting you. And that's because you want to be a rapper. Hug that woman. She's the one that's telling you the truth. Your boys are not telling you the truth. Your mama not telling you the truth. That woman that you're with that are, that's telling you to log more hours at AutoZone and stop recording in your closet to put it on SoundCloud, she's telling you the truth, man. Now, if you're 18, 19, cool. But if you're 37 and you're still trying to get Metro Boomin's attention, stop rapping. That's it. Back to the show. Message Van Lathan. <laughs> Consummate dream killer. <laughs> um, well, considering we both uh, recognize at the top of this that there was a ton of file this away for later moments, uh, let's just go ahead and, and, and get into some. Um, one I noticed, and again, I don't think I noticed this uh, previously, in, in previously in a rewatch, Herc and Carver running the plate and figuring out Nikki Sabaka's truck is the one all up in the trap. Yep, yep, <laughs> yep, yep. And again, as I said, real funny how he told Ziggy not to do it, but this dude went out and just like got himself the, you know, the Range Rover of trucks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was like, yeah, nobody will notice this. Yep. He um, saw that. By the way, he's becoming more what he said he didn't want to be with every single second. He is becoming more what second. he said he wasn't with every second, which tells you, he didn't even really know who he was. He had no clue because the moment that he got anything or got put in a position, he started doing exactly what everyone else does. Flashy car, all, all full of himself, in the drug game, the whole thing. So it's all a bunch of bullshit. All of this stuff that they tell you, it's all lies. Yep, totally true. Um, them egging on Ziggy to take on Maui after Maui pulls off the the love child prank. Um, mm-hmm. That's a big, save this away for later. And by the way, the continual humiliation of Ziggy is is pretty bad. You know, bad. I mean, he, they, that man was bullied. That man was bullied. Uh, yeah, in a real way. And it, in a that, real way. That's a, that, that's a father's away for later moment because, you know, the rubber band only pulls so far. Precisely. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just feeds off all the insecurity and resents, resentment that he already has. I mean, what he resents more than anything is that he is in an environment where all he is shown is his incompetence. Like, he wasn't even smart enough to follow up on that paternity suit. Well, one, wasn't smart enough to know that typically these are delivered by officers of the court, right. okay? Two, that he wasn't even smart enough to not just really look at the paperwork, but to do a call to find out what the fuck is this about? And once again, Nikki is in another position where he has to save him from himself, which he also resents because he's like, I'm a grown man and this other grown man is constantly showing me what I'm not. Mm. So it's just, they're just lighting Ziggy's fuse right now in a real way. Uh, Also, people should pay attention to the florist who sold Bodie the arrangement. Um, for Dee's funeral, because we will see him later in this series. And, and I don't know, I was a little bit saddened by what those arrangements look like. Like the RIP with the guns. I'm the like, gat and the little Uzi. The gat. Yeah. The little Uzi. I was like, please tell me not, y'all not really putting this 
on people's. Oh, I've you know, seen that. On caskets. Oh my god. I've seen that. Not that not, not like guns and stuff like that, but like arrangements that you like, man, come on, bro. Like, like at least let us be sad without the, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, like I, I've seen stuff like that before. I've definitely seen those at funerals. Yeah, I mean, and even, even Bodie's decision to get an arrangement, like the projects that A he used to trap in. Damn. You sending my <laughs> what, brother, dog? you sending my brother to the projects in the afterlife. Come on, Bodie. Uh, well, so what were some of your file this away for later moments? Man? Um, I mean, you got a lot of them. Uh, obviously, Prop Joe and Stringer's conversation is a major, gigantic Father's Away for Later moment. Of course, this is neither the time nor the place, but I thought I might get at you for a moment. Got a proposition here. Go ahead to the corner. It's one of the more seismic Father's Away for Later moments uh, that we're going to see this season. Uh, just because the ramifications. Some Father's Away, when we do Father's Away for Later moments, they should have they should come with like a Richter scale, you know? Mm-hmm. Because some of them are, hey, we're gonna see this come back up a little bit. And then some of them are Northridge, Earthquake, Earth Shattering, Father's Away for Later moments. And I would say that the moment that Prop Joe uh comes over to Stringer and they talk about that is a 7.1 on the file this away for later Richter scale. Because what that leads yeah. to is a foundation-shaking piece of wire television history, whatever you, however you want to say it. That leads to a complete restructure, a crumbling, a rebuilding, the entire thing. Yeah. Another great scene is Stringer and Avon uh, together in prison. Um, when Avon, which by the way, I have something, I have, I have a meme alert written by that scene, meme alert. And I'll tell you why I think Avon's response to Stringer offering, what happens is prop Joe comes up to Stringer at the funeral, then Stringer goes and runs it by Avon. He wants to use the good dope that prop Joe is getting from the Greeks in the towers exchange for territory, the whole nine. When he brings that to Avon, the look on Avon's face Avon is pissed that he asked. Avon is like, what? No. Like, that. I, I know that Weebae's reaction to uh, Little Man shooting Kima is uh, in the the, 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 the... Arguably the number one meme of, of The Wire. I probably is the number one meme of The Wire, right? It's a, it's a very well-used, well-known meme. I think Avon's response, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start that as a meme. Anytime somebody asks me something that I don't like, how Avon looks, Avon, no. Like, like right away, he looks at Stringer like Stringer's grown a third eye. Uh, so I think that's one of the best scenes in the show as well. No, it, it was it was very telling. And um, it, it it spoke to why, how the, how much that proposition um, really changed the course of, of this series. It's like his reaction, that gives you the tension point of why that proposition was such um, a big deal. All right, so we've covered all the file this away for later moments. I thought as well that this episode was littered with what aged the best mm. and what and what aged the worst, too. Um, did you have any what aged the best, man? All right. One thing that aged the best is fears of workplace automation. 
Boom. Like, like, like when I as soon as I saw that, I was like, uh-oh. I just watched a, a sensational documentary on Vice News a couple of weeks ago, um, where these truckers were very upset that they're doing these self-driving trucks. It's fantastic. It's called the future of work. Um, and it was talking about automation and what automation is going to do. These are fears that were had then. I'm not sure how automated those ports are now, but people are still terrified that Hal and Johnny Five and all these different people are going to come take their jobs for them. Uh, so fears of workplace automation uh, is definitely, uh, definitely one of those. Uh, it, re- it reminded me of... Uh, you know, it was a it was a big theme the last um, election about what will happen to the coal miners. Mm-hmm. And one of the things was that uh, one that there's still even coal miners who are resisting renewable energy, even though they can be trained to work within a society that has renewable energy or a plant um, that focuses on that. But there is uh, I read a great story um, a, a couple of years ago in The Washington Post that talked about this very issue about why guys uh, and women who have been doing this 20, 30 years, they are very resistant to learn new skills to do uh, renewable energy, even though it's something that saves their lives mm. uh, as well. Because we know all the, you know, black lung disease. Uh, there's a ton of different, um, you know, health ramifications that come with working in a coal mine. But they are as resistant as we see these port guys because this is the only life that they know, they've known. So, you know, Van, that's an in, in, incredible, uh, that's an incredible um, observation to make about uh, the automation, how that has impacted industrialization. That issue has not gone anywhere. No, and, and it continues as technology grows. Uh, the threat to the average of working American, um, actually, it's 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 growing exponentially. Um, but you know, we have to be we have to be pliable, and we have to be fluid, and we have to figure out ways how to integrate. Uh, also, something that jumped out at me. Now, I'm gonna ask you. This is either age the best or age the worst. We don't really get these. When BD is talking to uh, Rhonda Perlman, Rhonda Perlman lets BD know that if it were drugs, they would be all over it. But because they're investigating, there's a subplot that we should talk about real quick to where the web of human trafficking and the ramifications of that are being heavily in- investigated by Prez and Greg's. They're going to strip clubs. They're going to the brothels, figuring out where these girls are going um, because that's going to be a big part of of closing down those 14 murders. Uh, They can't get any traction on wiretaps and help uh, from the state's attorney's office for this. And Perlman lets them know that if it was drugs, it would be cool, but it's women, so it won't. Did the fact that women don't matter as much and their abuse doesn't matter as much. Did that age better or did it age the worse? Because I can see that those situations are still going on, but it seems as if in the last three or four or five years, at least they've been begun to be in address. What do you think? So I, I'm glad you, you also made this observation because I had it under what aged the best mm. it is, uh, in terms of um, just treating women as disposable and as if they as if they don't matter, and while I realize the the incremental progress that has been made, the Me Too movement, the fact that we know so much more about uh, sex trafficking and sex slavery today than we did when David Simon uh, first wrote this and when this came out, are certainly important steps that have been taken. However, that being said, 
the overall lives of women um, when certain things happen to women. I mean, we could just look at domestic violence and uh, sexual assault where we are with those issues. There just has not, there's been, the progress has been painful and slow. Mm. And it's still the same kind of mentality where these things don't matter. Because even though we know more about it, we're only going to go so surface level deep with it. Mm. Because I don't think we want to know how pervasive sex slavery is in our society. It's like you, it's in everyday businesses in places where we don't want to ask too many questions. We see these happenings and people remain unaffected. That's why when you look at the cities that have very high sex trafficking numbers, you're like, wait, what? You know, um, like Texas, like Houston is one of the hotbeds apparently for sex trafficking. Right. Mm. And so when you're looking at these cities, you're just like, how is this happening? And the, the PSAs we've seen are constantly trying to make people aware of how this goes under the radar, undetected, and frankly, how we fuel the economy. Yeah. So I just felt like the mentality toward this definitely aged well. I do have another, did it age poorly or not? Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, one for you, but before I get to that one, because that was a, a little, I guess, less important. Mm-hmm. I mean, the uh, the ones I also thought aged the best um, were poor or working class white people convincing themselves that they are better. And that would be Nikki Sabaka. Mm-hmm. And that when he had that conversation with Frog, I couldn't help but think about that. Along those same lines, uh, Black people being told to wait their turn. As Frank Sabaka so uneloquently tells Nat uh, that, yeah, I know I promised it. Yeah, I know. But just let me hold it a little bit longer. And that is like, no. Nah. And I'm like, well, damn, that aged really well. Aged <laughs> fucking perfectly. Fantastic. Fantastically well, being told by white people, we need to continue to wait. Mm -hmm. Um, So the one that I was torn on in terms of did it age the best or the worst is the term wigger. Did it age well or not age well? It's gone, man. It had its run during the Jerry Springer era. I I felt like it was gone. Yeah, like you, I, I heard it too. Like it's gone. Like really the era that The Wire existed in was like the, uh, the uh, it was the height of wigger wiggerdom, um, like it, 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 I didn't realize it reached a peak. Yeah, wiggerdom reached a peak, especially on those. Was it? Was it when? Uh, what was that movie with um, the redhead actor that came out? America, not um, Malibu's Most Wanted. It, uh, Malibu's Most Wanted. I almost said America's Most Malibu's Wanted. Malibu's Most the Wanted. Peak of, of that that kind of was the peak of wigger culture. Is Malibu's Most Wanted? <laughs> You had some other. You had uh, you had Danny Koch did a, a show. I think it was called White Boy, uh, a movie called White Boys. That was pretty good. Yes, I remember yeah, that yeah. about the white boys from Idaho, Iowa, Idaho, Iowa, or and they had Iowa, Iowa, yes. Idaho, and they had went to Chicago to, to like. They yeah. went to Chicago. Yes. <laughs> like, that was actually dope, man. Danny Koch doesn't get his flowers. He's dope. Um, but uh, so I, I feel like now that's kind of that era is kind of over. You know what I mean? Like that, you know. That era is kind of gone. Like I don't hear the term. But one of the the major failings uh, of 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 black culture, we've never really been able to concoct a significant term to call white people. Like we don't have a good one. We don't have a good slur. When one that sticks. One that sticks. Wigger didn't stick. Wigger doesn't mean anything. Wigger's almost like a. But did, was that was that ours though? I mean, did black, we come up? I don't think we came up with that. Black people would say I think white people came up with black that. Black people would say wigger. I heard it and I never understood it. Oh, I heard them say it, but I think 
That oh, you not, think white people came up with Wigger? Maybe they did. I think white people came up with that. Maybe they yeah. did. You know, they can have they can have credit for it, but it never really stuck. Uh, it was like yeah. it is, it's kind of a it's because it, it it's a diss to them and to us. <laughs> so. Right. That's why I feel like we we knew what it meant and we may have used it, but, but I don't think we nah, embraced it nah. necessarily. I, like I, that. I think Wigger's pretty much gone, man. Rest in peace to Wigger, man. <laughs> R.I.P. You had a you had a strong run, but a short one. Yeah. Um now in terms of what age the worst, by far to me, uh, what was glaring in this one about what age the worst is the entire conversation around D'Angelo's possible mental health. Like, we know he didn't commit suicide. Like, we know that that didn't happen, obviously. However, them thinking that, them believing that that was the case, and the conversation, everybody victim-blamed D'Angelo. Everyone called him weak. Weak. Everybody Everybody did. did. Avon was mad. Mm -hmm. Weebae was like, I mean, Avon even called him, he was like, I mean, he always was weird. It was like, yeah, wow. And... It, I mean, I guess you, you could possibly put it in that category, too, of did it age the best or the worst? Because we, I mean, we're in a much better place, as um, as you've spoken to these issues many times. It's like we're in a much better place in terms of us talking about mental health and the black community. But the conversations that they were having about D'Angelo in this are still taking place in our community. Sure. Sure. I think that we, I think that worst begun, though. I, I just don't think that you could, at this point, I'm going to go, it's age the worst. I don't think that you could look at anybody that's taking their life at this point and call them weak or weird and get away with it. I just think there's been too much information and too much information in the last two years about that for anyone to think that someone that's struggling to that degree is weak or weird. I don't think that works anymore. I think that aged very poorly. Yeah, that's why it was interesting. And it started off, the episode started off that way because, you know, as we talked about, it starts off with Bodie buying flowers for D'Angelo and even though he's doing it more out of obligation, out of order, as opposed to actually feeling a level of sorrow for for D'Angelo, particularly since he knows he committed suicide. Like, if D'Angelo died in a prison fight, Bodie might have bought him three times as many flowers mm-hmm. as he actually did. Yeah. Right? But because he knows he, he believes he died by suicide, that's why he was like, I mean, he was a weak ass nigga when you think about yeah. it. It was like, yeah. damn, like, right. So, a lot of the heartbreak, I mean, even the, the heartbreak that's experienced by, um, you know, Brianna, uh, the indifference by Donetta, which definitely did not go unnoticed. Cause when Stringer was like, are you all right? And she looked like he asked her for an order of eggs. It was just like, uh, I mean, I guess, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? Uh, I wonder how that grief looks differently if he died in their minds a more valiant way. And they were, of course, unable to see how, if he had to die by suicide, how they particularly contributed to that yeah. with trying to force him to be somebody um, that he wasn't. Oh, it was one what aged the, the best I forgot to mention. Jesus on the main line. Oh! Which they sung at forever a gospel oh. box. Timeless. Oh, that always ages. I can't tell you right. what it does tell to my soul. Want. And they had an acapella <laughs> version of that joint ripping. Thank you. Woo! I, lo- I, lo- I love that. I'm not going to lie, man. I love that song, man. I love me some Jesus on the main line. I was like, oh, mm-hmm. that age just like so damn well. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, So now we turn to the, the moment I know you always look forward to. Uh, for, I don't even feel like it's... I should call this a Stringer Bell fuckboy moment. I feel like this is a Stringer Bell fuckboy episode. Yeah. For 
everything that he does in this. His duplicity is this. I think I just made up a word, but y'all know what I meant. Yeah. His duplicity in this episode is pretty vomit-inducing. I, I ha- oh, I, fake comforting, I, fake posturing, cold-hearted, evil ass. I have it written down here. Not strings, best <laughs> moments. <laughs> Because I knew you were gonna like, I was like, dude, it's just like his level of fuckboyness. Like you said, it should be earthquake levels. Mm -hmm. Stringer Bell's levels of fuckboyness are honestly infinity in this episode. The fake comfort, comforting uh, Brianna, his words to Avon. I trust me, if it was if it was on you, I would tell, yeah, motherfucker, you would, because it's on you. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Going behind his back. Avon part is as noble as he got in the episode, though, because that's him trying to alleviate the praying off Avon for something that he knows he did. That's as noble. That's as noble. The Brianna scene is tough. Horrible. Like, like Donetta, <laughs> Donetta, you know, Donetta don't care nothing about D no way, so it don't matter. Mm-hmm. She like these bills paid? Yeah, okay, yeah. whatever. Like, 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 she probably looking at him like, you know, just go in the back after. Come on, like nobody in here. Oh, you sit, wait, hold up. But you see how she looks at him right. at the funeral when he doesn't get in the car with right. her. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's already, it's already going down. But, but, um, the, the, the Brianna scene is, ugh. That's, you know what I, there's a parallel scene. Juice. Do you remember Juice? Oh, pop! Right, yeah. So if you guys never yes. saw, if you guys oh. never saw Juice before, the, <laughs> yes, the Pac, craziest yeah. scene in Juice to me is Pac has killed. Uh, I'm about to blank on his name. Is it Raheem? Um, was it Steel? No, 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 not Steel. That that was Steel the is, the heavy yeah. segment. Um, it was the light skin, the light, the light Khalil, skin played by Khalil Kane. Is uh, is his name? Is yes. his name Raheem? No, it's not. Why am I saying Raheem? Yes, it is Raheem. Okay, so Bishop kills Raheem. And then he goes to Raheem's funeral or his wake, and his mom is there, and she's crying, and Bishop consoles her while he is staring at Some Q. Some dirty shit. And I'm going to watch Juice after this now. Bishop consoles... I am. Juice is amazing. I'm a, I'm a, he consoles her while he's looking at Q. And I thought the exact same thing watching String console Brianna. I'm like, this dirty mother... I'm like, I ain't going to lie. Jamel got this one. You a low down ass motherfucker in that scene right there. That's crazy, man. It's nothing you can say. It's it, it's irrefutable evidence. Say. Like it, again, if you've been riding with this clown to this point, you have no humanity. You have no morality okay. about yourself. If Easy. you continue to ride for Stringle a- after this, yeah, I said it. Easy. I'm like, was it not enough when he tapping the baby mama? And again, not just hitting it, trying to be replaced D'Angelo. Why he was still alive? Easy. Right? It's like, what? Nobody's perfect. <laughs> that dude knows no boundaries. Right. None at all. Mm-hmm. And this was just like the ultimate. This is, I would say, because I know some of the things happened in, street, in season three, I would say this is his peak fuckboy moment. Mm-hmm. But I don't even think I can say that comfortably. Oh, no. Because he has more. No, 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 no. He has way well, more String, than this. String's diabolical cat, man. He's a different kind of cat. We can move on now. Shout out String with Bell, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you ain't nothing bad. All right. Uh, we don't do these every show, but I point, I, I just, this just kind of occurred to me in this one watching it. Um, we don't do a we love this show, but in every show, because it's like a lot of these episodes, frankly, uh, it's really, unless we are getting super, 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 super picky, Hard to pick them out. But I thought it was one that, eh, I don't know about that. So when 
Nat and Frank are getting into it about whose turn it is. And Nat is telling him, hey, you know, it's our turn now. And then he says something about, well, look, if I abandon this thing in the state, then we're going to be a bunch of N-words. And then he comes back with, we're going to be a bunch of, it doesn't even feel right to say P-word. I'm not going to equate it. Polots, right, right? right? Okay. Black, white, what's the difference, Nat? Until we get that fucking canal dredged, we're all niggers. Pardon my French. Or Polacks, pardon mine. You know the what? fact that they tried to, in a scene, make the false equivalency between, oh, I don't know, the words you can't say, generally speaking, in most circles, unless, you know, you're in your friend group or whatever, however you choose to use it if you're black. This, the one you can't put on a screen anywhere to equate that to the other one. Like, I was just like, are, are we doing this? Are we doing this to why? There is no equivalent. Yeah, my And it just... It just blows my... It's sometimes in this show, it, I know it's real, so I'm not... This is not me picking at the writing necessarily. But it, it still catches me off guard in the casualness of which it said. And maybe because I too much put myself in that situation. Like, I just could not imagine. That's my thing. <laughs> you know what I'm my saying? we love this show, but is that he said it to his face inside of that thing like that. To his face. That's, what, exactly. that's wild. I, I, I don't know those guys, but maybe they exist. I don't know. But yeah, that's like right. I had that written down. Like that's my you're not just gonna say that. Like there's no excuse me to that. Like you're not just gonna uh, maybe, maybe they do. Right. Maybe they do. I've never been to Docs. I'm going to Baltimore. I'm gonna get me some pit beef and some lake trout, and I'm gonna see if somebody calls me the N-word. <laughs> <laughs> you gonna go to the port and I'm gonna be go like, to the hey. port. Just ask. Maybe I'll dress up. We'll see. <laughs> and just ask, like, <laughs> who is it? Right. Um, but yeah, that was like a very interesting attempt. Like it it it, it makes it makes sense for Nikki to say it to Frog, mm. right? And even when he's saying it at various points, it's just like, okay, it makes more sense for the black people to say it in front of them. Right. It does not make a whole lot of sense sometimes in which the casualness in which they use it, um, it's just like, okay. And then they throw that no offense on there. It's like, what? Yeah. I could just punch you in your, your fucking face right now. Yeah. How about that? Right. Um, all right, a little bit of trivia other than... Uh, Van's ob- observation that Love Child has been sampled and is in um, Janet Jackson's "You Want This," yes, uh, which I think is which I think is a very fun fact. The other thing, um, learning more about Chris Bauer. Chris Bauer is the one who plays Frank Sabaka. Chris Bauer actually stopped drinking during season two, and at that point, it was the longest he had ever gone without alcohol, which was about forty days. He made it a way of life after that. And has, uh, I think, um, been sober up to this point. Well, I'll say he was at least sober up until um, reading the All the Pieces Matter. So he went a total of eight years uh, at that point without drinking, all because of playing Frank Sabaka. No, I'm not, I don't know if it was that. Wow. But that's what got him on the road to sobriety, was playing, praying him, uh, playing him. And what's interesting is that uh, you know, not just him. I mentioned mentioned this on a previous podcast. The fact that Michael K. Williams was dealing with a substance abuse addiction during this time of of The Wire. Mm. Um, uh, uh, and uh, I'll add another little small bit of trivia. Um, we in the last episode we discussed um uh, the fate of Bird, which finally came to a head uh, after Omar's glorious testimony. Mm. Fredro Starr says in All the Pieces Matter that he thinks the reason they wrote his character out is because he, when they were filming in Baltimore, uh, they, him and his boys, they all came, or his boys came to Baltimore, you know, with him. 
And they were staying at some hotel that they got kicked out of because he was smoking weed in the hotel. And even though the people um, in charge of the wire, the, you know, they told him, like, we're going to need you to kind of chill out. He didn't. He kept smoking weed in the hotel. And he thinks that is why he was written out of the show. He was like, yeah, I realized Birdman, Bird is a hitman, rather, and that he had probably had a short life expectancy anyway. But he does feel as if he sped that up because of his behavior actually off screen. So Bird wasn't in the show that so, much. No, he wasn't. So he feels like uh, they may have done it anyway, yeah. but he basically said, I ain't helped myself. There you go. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you know how that is. All right. Moment of truth, Van. Who won the episode? I'm going to go a little lighthearted here because it's one of my favorite subplots anywhere in any episode of The Wire. The tennis ball bug won the episode. You know what this means? What? It means old Fuzzy Dunlop here somewhat worse for where I admit is really going to start paying off as a confidential informant. <laughs> the tennis ball bug one. Go episode. on to be known as Fuzzy Dunlap. The ten- Fuzzy Dunlap. The, the tennis ball bug won the episode. I, I, like, never in the history of The Wire have you seen a character be born, have a whole dramatic arc, and then die. In the same episode. It is the only time that I can ever remember in The Wire where so much drama was around a character that you see come, born, boom, and then they die. I loved it just because that scene where uh, Frog picks up the tennis ball and then throws it is so well played Oh, by Seth Gillum. It's so well played. He freaks out. And then the drama by which the ball is uh, is crushed is amazing as well. And also, you know, there's a lot of commentary in there talking about the strained resources that the police department has, how they have to juke the system, how that little piece, uh, how that little mistake leads to wholesale fraud. Oh, it does. It yeah. leads to yeah, it totally wholesale does. fraud. By the way, the Fuzzy Dunlap thing, the tennis ball thing is another father's away for later moment because... I was just thinking yeah, that. Like, yeah, that was another when father's we, away. we should have probably thrown it Yeah. Um, but so I just think it's 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 a very funny... <laughs> I, I know it's a little bit wacky, but I thought it was the, the, the I like ball it. Bug. I dig it though. Yeah. I dig it that the tennis ball... Um, I mean, it was a pretty... It was... That was a major through line in this entire... Yeah. In this entire episode because it does lead to some... Un, some Corners being cut that will not surprisingly later come back to um, to bite, you know, police brutality one and two, as I like to call them. Um, Herc and Carver, although Carver a little bit less these days. I think Daniels got him right. Um, speaking of who won the episode, um, speaking of Daniels, rather than who won the episode, I think it was him. Mm. Um, you know, he was clearly at war with himself. He has started to backslide in the company man. Um, political Daniels and that moment with Lester. And for that matter, you know, all the reasons that he allowed all the reasons he fell in love with the job and continued to try as he might to do it the best way he know he knows possible. Those feelings emerged. And I think they, I mean, I think them eventually winning out over what would have been politically the smarter play, which is to avoid the murders at all costs, make the, the, make the arrest you can make and not worry about the rest of it. Because honestly, given the way the case was proceeding and what they found out about the drugs, 
uh, they would have been able to maybe make that clean as they possibly could anyway. Mm-hmm. And without the dead girls, but to take them on because of his sense and duty and responsibility, I thought was, you know, again, one of Daniel's finest moments and why he is in conversation, if not leading the conversation for best leader of the show mm-hmm. is that when it came time to it, when it wasn't convenient, he still decided to do the right thing, despite his hating ass wife. Ah! Who, uh, yeah, you could file that away for later mm-hmm. <laughs> about how long she stays, his hating ass wife. Um, anyway, well, everybody, good people, that's gonna do it for us. Thanks for tuning in. Yeah, Van feeling real affirmed in all of his toxic masculinity. <laughs> no, <I'm just> kidding. <laughs> Hey, I know I'm toxic femininity he's toxic masculinity I guess that's the way it works but uh, thanks everybody uh, continue to listen to us and keep watching The Wire we'll see you again next time <laughs>